Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for how you've preserved it over the centuries, and you give it to us for our teaching and our edification and our understanding, Lord, and it's powerful and alive and living, and it cuts through our own souls and our own spirits and exposes the things that we need to lay before you, God. It leads us into truth through your Holy Spirit, and we praise you for that. And we pray that we can also glean something from these historical narratives. In Jesus' name, amen. So from last week when Manny preached, he preached Genesis 12 and he focused on verses 1 through 9 and he was talking about the call of Abraham. So there's some similarities between what God tells him there and what he says here and I'm just going to read that, those verses real quick. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the call. And then in this passage, when he does it, he's a little bit more specific. He says, look around, look north, look south, look east, look west. I'm going to give you all this. He said, walk the breadth of the land. All this is going to be yours. So when he gave the call, he said, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make your name great. And here he just makes it a little bit more specific. And Abram did what Abram does, right? He obeyed God. He said, so Abram went, and the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Just as a side note, this makes you think, okay, he was in Haran, and this is where God called him, and this is the first time that's recorded that Abram had contact with God. But Stephen, in the New Testament in Acts, says that God contacted Abraham before in Mesopotamia, before they were in Haran. Haran. So that's just something to note. There's things in the New Testament that are shedding light on this Old Testament passage when we allow it to do so. Abram took, his, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So in that chapter 12, God comes to Abram twice. And then he comes to him once in chapter 13. And that's going to be a little bit interesting. And before that, in Genesis 11... Got Terah, his father, it says he took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran and his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. So Terah, his father, had a, he wanted to go to the land of Canaan. Why did he want to go to the land of Canaan? It doesn't say that God talked to him, but now we have maybe Abram, this is a maybe, it doesn't say this, maybe Abram told his dad, because God contacted him in Mesopotamia and said, hey, Dad, let's go to Canaan. I don't know. But something was going on there because for some reason, Terah lifted up his entire family and started moving to a place that he had no idea what it was like or who lived there or what they were like. We know why Abram went, because God told him to go. But Terah, I don't know. <clears throat> now, since the main focus of last week 
was God's faithfulness to his calling on Abram and what he's done. We're not going to focus on that for the rest of the sermon. So that was your intro. I titled this section of my sermon, Sharing the Pain. You ever been reading the scriptures or a book where someone was given great insight by God and you find a whole new area of your life that you were previously unaware of that was problematic, that could cause sin issues that you needed to deal with. Well, I have an example for you. I read a book, oh wait, yeah, I have an example, but, and since misery loves company, I'm gonna share this all with you to see if anybody else can experience this. I read a book years ago, right? So this is, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. I read a book by Dr. Larry Crabb. Has anyone ever read, heard of this guy? people. It's called Inside Out. And he, he taught me a, a, what I would call a new sin, or rather he exposed a behavior that I could be guilty of and have been at various times in my life, and he called it the sin of self-protection. And he had a specific definition for that. But I'm going to boil that down, and it basically means that you preemptively shut people out of your life at an intimate connecting level because you're afraid of the pain that it could cause. So you can be an upstanding Christian in the kingdom, doing God's work, going to church, giving money, serving, but keeping people with a little shell around you and not creating those relationships that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ. And that can be a sin, because you're not fulfilling God's law of love. You are supposed to make these, and yes, some of them end badly, and yes, there can be pain, and yes, there can be betrayal because you're dealing with a bunch of other sinful people, but God wants us to still enter into those relationships and give that to him. So that was the basis of what this sin was that he brought up in the book. And for me, this week, as, I, as I'm looking through this, that just like came up and hit me out of nowhere, and I was like, wow, I haven't even thought about this. But then, you know, practically it means you just don't let people get close to you, maybe not even your spouse, right? Maybe you're keeping them a little bit out there because it, it hurts, because I let them in once and that didn't go well, so now I'm just going to put up a little bit of wall and maybe it'll go better from now on. I was so happy that I realized that I could just add this to the list of, you know, stuff, <laughs> stuff that we have to deal with. I was like, thanks, man, you're so great. So what does this have to do with Abram and Lot? And I'm started to call him Abramaham. Because in here he's Abram, but everybody in the New Testament calls him Abraham, and we always slip up. So I was like, I'm just going to call him Abramaham, because that makes it easy for me. Okay, so, so maybe this doesn't have anything to do with this, but we're going to examine the scripture in the light of this wonderfully depressing self-reflection that I was reminded of. And the sermon, you know, this is kind of a non-obvious direction for this, so I just pray that you can follow along. What this new sin brings to mind for me is motive. Why I do what I do, why I think what I think, why I say what I say. And if we know our scriptures at all, we know that that is a huge deal in the kingdom. This is God constantly, all through the scripture, has said, I want your hearts to be right with me. 
I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your incense. I don't need your money. I don't need your stuff. I need your heart to be there. Another way to say that is, what is in my heart for a given outward action? That's what I have to be evaluating continually. What is in my heart for an outward given action? And God looks at the heart, not just the actions, right? First Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. This is when Samuel was picking David. He's going through all the sons of Jesse. And all of them were big, strapping young men who looked great. And the first king of Israel was Saul, who was heads and shoulders taller than everyone else and was a fine-looking specimen of humanity, supposedly. <laughs> and that's why they picked him, because he looked good. He was tough. He was a big warrior. And so then they're going through all the sons of Jesse, and they're like, oh, surely that's the guy. And he says, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Matthew 5.28, Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is motive versus outward action. In that situation, a person looking, he's look, looking. doesn't say. He says everyone who looks, so I don't, man or woman doesn't matter. But the point is, is, is you're just looking. That's not, we would not typically consider that to be a sinful action. You're just looking. And he's, Jesus is saying, but what's in your heart makes it sinful if what's in your heart is sinful. It's your motive. Just because you don't steal and you don't murder, you still have to look at what's in your heart because that is what God is looking at. And that's why we have grace, which is really awesome. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil, uh, sorry, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is why we need a savior, right? This is why Jesus died for us, because of this very thing. There's many more examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We know this as believers, right? At least we know it up here. But I find myself still defaulting to just making sure I don't do the bad things, my outward acts, right? And when something comes to a thought and the Holy Spirit says, hey, and I'm like, oh, yes, Lord, I'm sorry. I should, you know, I should deal with this. But most of the time, I'm okay to just, you know, hey, I didn't, I didn't mess anyone over. I didn't lie. I didn't cheat. I didn't steal. I didn't do any of those things. I'm good to go. And I think Part of the problem is, is that we also put that same idea onto what people call characters in the Bible. Everybody gets elevated to this non-human, sinless kind of existence in our minds. So we're going to talk about that. So when I prepare for a sermon, I listen to preachers I respect. I read commentaries by preachers and teachers that I respect, and I see how they treated a passage after I have a feel for it, right? So I'll go through, I'll study, and I'll try to figure out where I think it's going, and then I read what they said and to see if I'm completely out there, which has happened. On a particular, most of, the, most of the messages I saw in this particular case focused on Abraham's generosity to Lot and on God's faithfulness at the end of the chapter. That's the only two things that happen here. They separate, and God re reiterates his call on Abram, or Abraham, if you will. And those are 
absolutely in this passage. I'm not saying that anyone who preaches that is wrong at all. Those are in here, and you can, it's right there in front of you, so don't get me wrong on that. But we're going to look at the other side of the coin, and, I, and to me it feels like it makes me a little bit more discerning on Scripture and try to make it a little bit more real. So you are reading what the Scripture says, but you also want to take into account what the Scripture is not saying that you may be assuming that it says, right? Just like that verse I just read where it says out of, uh, from Jesus, it says everyone who looks on, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Most of us probably thought that was if a man looks on a woman with lustful intent. He didn't say that. Man's included, but he's also not exclusive in that particular case. So those are things that we might assume, read over it real quick, and not really see what the Scripture actually says in that case. So I turn that over. Okay. That was on the right page. So from the text, we have Abram doing, what did he, what did, what did he do? So he initiated conflict resolution with his, his nephew Lot. He went to Lot. He was generous to Lot. He said, you pick. You go where you want, right? He didn't insist on his seniority or his station. He is the elder uncle. He's the guy in charge, ostensibly. More than likely, he's been mentoring Lot as a father figure for years because Lot's father died in Haran, right? So he's definitely got the elder statesman kind of a vibe going on right now. And he didn't insist on any of that. He could have just told Lot, you go there. I'm going to go here. And we already know that God told him he would be taking over the land of Canaan, but he let Lot pick between the Jordan Valley or going into Canaan, which is odd to me, because he already knew God was going to give him Canaan. So why didn't he just tell Lot, you know, you go to the Jordan Valley? But he gave Lot the choice. If Lot had chosen Canaan, what did that look like? I don't know. And from a larger view, if we come back a little bit and some of the stuff that has happened before and some of the stuff that's going to happen later, last chapter, Abram failed to trust God in regards to Pharaoh and Sarai. The Bible doesn't tell us that he called on the name of, the God, on the name of God before he went to Egypt. It just says he went to Egypt and then he cooks up this scheme and he has his wife lie. He tells her, you will lie to Pharaoh and you will say this, and I will also lie and I will say the same thing. That's not good behavior, just in case you're wondering. That is not a biblical example that you should do, right? What else? Well, I found this interesting verse in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who makes an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. There's been multiple times that people in Scripture have gone to Egypt. And, and so God tells us right there through the prophet Isaiah, I'm not really happy about that unless you ask me, because he did tell Joseph, 
and Mary to go to Egypt. He told them. But it doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us that he told Abram. Do, do we mean, does that mean he didn't tell Abram? No, it does not. Again, what does the Scripture actually say versus what we might infer? I'm saying, look at it. It doesn't say that he told him to go to Egypt, but that doesn't mean God didn't do it. You just have to be careful with that. Later, God questions uh, God, Abram questions God about how the promise is going to be fulfilled. Because he's, you know, he's 75 when he leaves last chapter, and he's getting older and older, and so he's like, God, you say I'm going to have all these offspring, but I don't, so the person who's going to be in charge of my household is one of my servants. I don't have any children. What do you want me to do? And so he's questioning God at that point, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it shows a little bit of trust issue. Also, Abram had, and Abraham, Abraham had a full face-to-face relationship with God. Like, God came to him multiple times in the flesh and talked to him. I've got all these references from Genesis, and if you want all of them, I can give them to you, but they show you all the times when God came, and the only one that was only audible based on the Hebrew was Mount Moriah, where he was sacrificing Isaac. The rest of them, God showed up. Sometimes he showed up in more than one way at the same time. It's, it's like if you parse the language that's in Moses and the burning bush, God is in the bush and he's also over here talking at the same time. So you have to be careful again with all those. But Abram was obedient to God whenever God asked him to do something. God said, do this, he did it. I mean, that is a tremendously wonderful trait to have. And all of us should aspire to that. Abram, Abraham is mentioned 74 times in the New Testament. That is a lot. He's the spiritual father of all who believe by faith. This is all attributed to him, right? Galatians 3, 5 through 9. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, that man of faith. So we know that Abraham is our spiritual father. We know that God created a nation out of no nation to redeem all the nations. That's what we've been talking about ever since we got into Genesis chapter 6. And Abraham was the beginning of that nation that God was creating, and we are all part of that nation, separate from the Israelites and the physical nation of Israel. There's prophecies and all kinds of things going on with them, but then there is the church. And we are grafted in to that nation that God was creating, which is amazing. So altogether, you know, you see all these things, and there's a lot of good things that commend us to Abram and Abraham or Abraham's character and, and what he did with God. But was he a sinner? Who would say he was a sinner? Right. He was a sinner. He wasn't Jesus. Therefore, he was a sinner. Those, those are your two options, basically. Otherwise, if he wasn't, 
his belief in God wouldn't have had to have been counted to him as righteousness because he would have already been righteous, but he wasn't. So his belief in God saying, I believe you, God, that, was, that made him righteous. That's what makes us righteous. That is what we say. I believe you, God. I believe you, Jesus. God says, okay, because of your belief, you now have my righteousness. And that's, that's the relationship. And again, he made Sarah, Sarah lie, right? Well, he does it twice. We haven't got there yet, but he, he, does it, he does the same thing again with a different king. So he didn't learn from that one. And, and most people that preach this passage, they, they, they say that Lot wasn't a very good person, right? Because what did Lot do? He, you know, we'll, we'll get into that, but what I want to, what I want to say is this, this isn't a clear-cut case of Abram good, Lot bad in this passage. That's not what it is. And I was reminded of Luke chapter 20 and Jesus talking. Uh, I mean, here's the thing, right? Abram, Lot, Sarai, all their servants, all the people, these are real people with real lives. And this is real history. They weren't supermen. People, you know, Paul was not the super apostle. He was a man who struggled with things, just like we do. And... Abram, Abraham, and Lot, he's alive right now, today. Luke chapter 20, verse 34 through 38. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus affirmed, he's not dead. He's not on our physical earth right now, but he's not dead. He's alive. So let's talk about Lot a little bit. What about Lot? Nephew Lot, right? His brother's son, Haran, his son, and they were living in an area called Haran, so I don't know if the son was named after Haran or the area was named after his son. We don't know that either. Lot waited for Abram to solve the herdsman issue. He didn't approach first. Maybe he was content to just let it go. I don't know. He chose what it seems to us, financial gain and the absolute best for himself. He looked, he said, this place looks like the Garden of Eden, it's beautiful, I'm going to go there. This place looks less good. You know, Uncle Abram can have that. But let's roll it back a little bit, right? Lot, he has a ton of wealth. Both of them do. That's why they had to separate, because they had so much wealth together, they couldn't dwell in the same area. So both of them are extremely successful businessmen. They manage huge flocks. They have tons of servants. They've gained all kinds of gold and silver. Right? These guys are, they got it going on. These are like the kings of Wall Street kind of thing, right? They are super rich guys. And so Lot has been being the mentee of Abram for these years. 
Where does he get all this knowledge? Probably from his uncle and probably from his dad when he was alive and probably from his grandfather, who were all herdsmen that had all this stuff. So what would be expected of Lot in that cultural tradition of being a good businessman? Would it be expected that he would take the best, given the choice, because that's the smart thing to do, and that's what he's been taught, and that's what all of them would have done in this situation, right? So maybe it wasn't quite as selfish as we think it was. It could have been. This is a test. If I take the other thing, he's going he's gonna to tell me that was the wrong choice. You should have took the best thing. Whatever you thought was best, that's what you should have done. You should think about all of the responsibility for all these people that you have. So right later, what happens? Lot and all of his people get stolen. And Abram fires up 318 super warriors, and he goes, tracks them down, and gets everyone back. Right? So this was all, all intertwined in their family. Obviously, there's no hard feelings between Abram and Lot. Right? So again, this isn't black and white. This is nuanced, just like all of our relationships with each other all the time. Our crazy families, or maybe I'm the crazy family, right? You don't, you don't really know. You might think that, <laughs> thanks, man, yeah. I've just been informed that, yes, it is, in fact, me. <laughs> but these are real people with real hearts in both senses of the word heart, right? They're not just stories. They were real people, and God has given us insight and a little bit of a look through the window into their life. So here's some other things we might be able to infer about Lot. Was he trusting his own righteousness through the evil of the cities of the Jordan Valley near Sodom? Because remember, later, which someone else will be preaching over, when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and they go there, Lot is one of the elders of the city of Sodom. But he wasn't participating in their sin. Right? And Lot did not ask God, and God did not come to Lot to tell him, I'm going to destroy this and you need to get your family out. The only reason Lot was saved was because Abraham said, there, If there's one righteous person, can you please save him? And God said, Okay. And Lot and his family were the ones that were chosen, the only ones that had not participated. But if Abraham wouldn't have done that, then I have to assume that. Lot would not have made it out. And that was just the way it was. So he's definitely, we don't ever see Lot calling on the name of the Lord in the scripture. And we have other instances of other people in the Bible where you have a king and he's crying out to God, like even King Hezekiah, and he goes to Isaiah and he asks him a question. But when he asks the question, he says, well, hopefully your God will do X, Y, Z. So he's saying, you're God, not my God, not our God, even though in many cases Hezekiah did call on the name of God and he considered him his God. But in certain instances, they use these weird turns of phrase and they go, maybe your God will do something about this. We don't think that way. Like if I'm going to ask someone to pray for me, I'm like, Brother Lee, pray that your God will help me in this situation. I would never say that. I'd be like, let's pray that Jesus will help me, Right? He is your God, but he's also my God, brother. <laughs> okay, so. And we know, like I said, Lot was the leadership of Sodom. He was possibly, 
separating his business life from his spiritual life. Have any of you ever separated your business life from your spiritual life? Yeah, you can actually raise your hands. I have. I've done that. Have you ever had dealings with someone who had a nice Christian fish on their business and did not live up to the honesty that you would expect from a Christian? There is another person whose outward actions seem to be separating their business life from their spiritual life, saying, I can go to church and I can read my Bible, but then when I'm in business, I can conduct it however I want, right? Lot may have been doing that. We don't know, but it's, think about it, right? And think about, maybe he was, and how have I done that? And how have I met people that have done that? And it can do things from saying, I need to get on my face before God, to, you know what? I need to pray for that person that 10 years ago really messed me over in a business deal. I haven't thought about them forever. Maybe God wants you to pray for them today, right? You don't know what the Holy Spirit is going to do when you're going through these scriptures and you're reading these things. And even saying that maybe he trusted his own righteousness and maybe he separated his spiritual and business life, is it fair of us to say that? I don't know. It's, it would be fair of us, unfair of us to be dogmatic about it because the Scripture doesn't tell us specifically. So where did my mind go after I went through all of that? Worship team, you guys can come on up here. So I, as I need to judge my own motives, and I need to allow the Spirit to guide me into truth, the Holy Spirit. And when do you get the Holy Spirit? You get the Holy Spirit when you believe God, like Abraham did, and you get credited your righteousness through Jesus Christ. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak his own, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So part of the things that that hit me with is that I need to be extremely careful when I quickly or flippantly judge other people. Like I have many times read this passage and I flippantly judge Lot. And I didn't think about maybe there's some extenuating circumstance. I didn't look at him like a real person. I looked at him as a prop piece attached to the Abraham story. Like he wasn't a real guy. And that's not good, and that isn't why God gave us a historical document that we can study. These people aren't prop pieces. The people that are in the story and in the narrative next to King David, right, next to Saul, next to Solomon, they're real people too. So what are their reactions? What's going on in the narrative? What can you glean out of what's in the Scripture? I believe that is why we all and myself should continually ask for discernment, compassion, and godly love when we're interacting with other people and when we're reading about other people. And can we do any of this without God's grace? Anyone? No? No, we can't. However, God's grace is available to many, many, many people that don't even realize it every single day. Even the whole living world has God's grace in their lives right this second. This is evidenced by the many people who do good things to other people and they do not have a relationship with God. 
there are people that would say, well, you can't do any good thing at all outside of God, outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that's not what we see in the world. People do good things to other people, and they don't know about Jesus. So how is that possible, right? That's because there is a hard truth of the difference between the imputed, conferred, given righteousness for eternal salvation and adoption into God's heavenly family versus the everyday expression of God's grace. Because I've said every time I preach the last few months, God had relationships and God had dealings with people outside of the children of Israel, outside of the line of Christ. Even there's different prophets, people that God would literally speak to. Like Pharaoh had vision and he knew which God it was, right? There's all these things that God was continually, he wasn't absent from the rest of the world and only talked to these people. The difference is, is he decided to take a certain people and make a nation completely set aside for him and his holiness and his kingdom because the rest of the nations had decided to rebel against him and do their own thing because what those other nations were supposed to do was all be led into worshiping of the one true God and they rebelled and didn't do that. So he said, that's fine. I'm not going to pick any of those nations. I'm going to create a new one and we're part of that. We need to think about that. The state of being eternally a daughter or son of God is only available through God's working in our lives to bring us into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. But it is freely available. Anybody can get it. And earlier I asked the question, is Abraham a sinner, right? Sit down for a couple hours and just think about what it means to be sinful. What, 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 what is it when you sin? What's the definition of being a sinner or what's the definition of sin? It's not as easy as you think. And so how do you apply it to yourself if you really don't know the definition? It's become a christian ease word that means bad. So we need to think about it sometimes. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What is it? So entering into that relationship means you learn more about your own darkness. That's one of the, I would say, quote-unquote, downsides. You get to learn how dark you really are. But God is light. He burns away that darkness. He forgives our sins. And he is, Psalm 46.1, our refuge and our strength and a very present help in trouble. Or as it used in the King James, a very present help in time of trouble, which that one rolls off the tongue. I like it. So now I want us to ask and seek and knock in worship. I want to ask God to reveal our dark, hidden places and ask for forgiveness. That hidden place, that darkness might be somebody else that you just don't like, right? God says, you want to come up here and take communion? You need to take your grievances to a brother and bring it to them before you go to the altar, right? So check your hearts. If you've got problems with somebody, make it right. Make it right. I mean, it was serious. It is serious. What did Paul say? People who have these grievances and then they go and take communion, he said, that's why some of you get sick and some of you die, because you take communion unworthily. I mean, this is serious. This is a real God with real power and a real Holy Spirit, and this word has been preserved miraculously 
So if you start getting into the mindset that the spiritual world doesn't really exist, you're just flat wrong. You've got to get that right. You've got to see God in the light of the power that is there and what's going on in the, in the real universe that we live in. So let's seek God, God's will. Let's seek his will and how we're supposed to engage with each other. This is a community. The church is a community. God does most of his miracles today through the church, through other people. When he does something in your life, he did it through a brother and sister. So if you push all your brothers and sisters away, how you, what you're doing is you're telling God, I, I don't want that blessing. I don't want you to work in my life that way. What I want you to do is I want you to come to my house, sit on my couch, and tell me revelation, and tell me how awesome I am, really. You're just saying, I'm not willing to let other people be part of your plan. It's just me and you, God. We're just the individual thing. I'm just going to be over here in my corner doing my thing. That's it. That's not scriptural. That is not what the church is. So that's the kind of stuff. Like I said, this was a little bit sideways message. Also, if you don't have that relationship, you need to knock, ask to be let in to the adoption agency. Because you can get adopted into God's family. We, all of us who claim the name of Christ, we've been adopted into God's family. So now we're all brothers and sisters. And half of our brothers and sisters, we don't really like that much. We don't want to play with our toys. And that's all fine. But they're still your family. So you get over it. You don't try to write them out of the will. You don't ask your dad, can they just not be part of the inheritance? You know, you don't do that. That's not cool. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to knock, ask, seek. Ask him to open up your hearts. And if you need that relationship, I'll pray with you. Johnny, pray with you. Joel, pray with you. Manny, pray with you. Brother Leo, pray with you. Will you pray with somebody? See? There's lots of people in here that will pray with you. But don't go out of here today without actually looking inside and saying, what is it that I'm doing that God really doesn't want me to be doing? That's all I'm asking. You guys should have already been playing something. I, you know. Wait for you to pray. All right. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your power. Lord, I thank you for this worship team. Thank you for their preparation. I thank you for their years and years of training and skill that they have put at your feet to use for your glory. God, I thank you so much for music itself, that base thing in the entire universe that brings us to heights of, of passion and sorrow and words that touch our soul. Lord, it's amazing. Music is just incredibly, incredibly powerful blessing you've given us. So I ask you to use that right now as we worship you, Lord. I ask you to open our hearts through the music, open our hearts through looking inside in your Holy Spirit, Lord. And I pray that if we choose to take communion today, that, Lord, we remember your body, we would remember your blood, we would take communion in the spirit that you gave it to us to know the sacrifice that you made, Jesus, for our eternal souls and redeeming all of the nations in the entire world, Lord. It's amazing what you're doing. So, Father, I pray that you would, again, bless this time and all of those who worked in the back and the children. In Jesus' name.